Hey, it's an Unbeliever Bible Club. For last week's intro, I talked about the Desert Fathers and the rise of monasticism in the East. Although the Desert Fathers, a group of Christian hermits who lived in the desert, intended to leave society behind so that they could become closer to God, their teachings and their example would capture the imaginations of the people who made Christianity what it is today. St. Anthony and the Desert Fathers would also inspire more ascetic movements, like the Stylites. This is cool. A Stylite is a Christian ascetic who sits on top of a pillar. And that's it. They can stand. Usually the top of the pillar was a small platform, but essentially they were marooned up there on purpose, with no food or water or ways to go to the bathroom. One of the most famous stylites was Simon of the desert, a hermit who lived in the 3rd century AD. Simon stayed on top of his pillar for 37 years. People like this were seen as holy men. They were giving up basic pleasures to live uncomfortably, to mortify themselves, and therefore gain a deeper spiritual insight. It was these extreme displays of patience and inner fortitude that inspired the people around them. Just like with St. Anthony, Simon attracted many pilgrims who would come to him and ask for advice, hoist him up a little basket of food, things like that. Despite what you might think, the early roots of monasticism didn't view the material world as inherently evil, just something that gets in the way and distracts you. People flocked to hermits to be forgiven, to receive advice, and ask for blessings because... These hermits are the closest to God. They're doing what each Christian believer at the time wished they had the strength to do. The hermits become spiritual heroes. It makes the people feel guilty, and talking with them alleviated that. Augustine is told a story about St. Anthony, and that is enough of an example to set him down the path to renouncing all of his wealth and his position and career in Roman society. That's how powerful this movement was. That's how revolutionary it was to the society at the time. But it would be the next trend in this world of hermits and stylites that would affect the movement and shape our modern world today. So far, we've only talked about hermits, a style of monasticism called eremitical monasticism. The next phase developed from the communities around figures like St. Anthony, Cenobitic monasticism a monasticism for the community. This grows into the medieval monasteries we recognize today. But there's a problem here. Monks since the Middle Ages haven't just been literate. They've been scribes. They aren't homeless. They live in a monastery on land they own. And lastly, they make a lot of money. How did a movement started by poor hermits living in the desert turn into a wealthy and elite part of the Christian establishment. That's what I'm here to talk about. Strap yourselves in. It's an Unbeliever Bible Club. (laughs) The word Cenobitic comes from the Greek, koinos, and bios, common life. Those who followed Cenobitic monasticism lived a common life with one another. The man recognized with founding this kind of monasticism is known as Saint Pacomius, A former soldier for the Roman Empire, Pacomius had a chance meeting with a group of Christians in Thebes, 
and after being impressed by their hospitality and good-naturedness, he vowed to return to the religion and investigate it thoroughly. After leaving the army, he did just that and came to be influenced by St. Anthony the Great, of course. He even relocated himself to Egypt to be near St. Anthony until a voice spoke to him, telling him, Hey, go down south and create a community of hermits. It'll be cool, I think. He does this, and sometime around 320 AD, Pacomius establishes his first monastery in Tabanisi in Egypt. It should be said, this is a new development. Before this, there were small communal cells provided by the Desert Fathers for people who were either physically or mentally unable to live up to the extreme example set by St. Anthony and his close followers. These cells were still in the middle of the desert. Pacomius's monastery was focused more on the community of people there. He was devoted to his followers, who called him Abba, or Father in Aramaic, from which we get the term abbot, the head of a monastery. The writings and teachings of Pacomius were collected into a work referred to as the Ascetica, which would be translated into Latin by St. Jerome. The influence grows. This would directly influence monasticism in the Eastern Orthodox Church. But the Western Church would follow another man. 124 years after the death of Anthony, Benedict is born in Nursia, Italy. He is known as Benedict of Nursia. He's described in the dialogues of Pope Gregory I, Gregory the Great, as a man who saw his mission being, very seriously, to save the world. In other words, the work of monks contributes to the kingdom of God. This will have huge implications. Anthony develops a monastic code with some additions from the Ascetica of Pacomius. It is called the Rule of St. Benedict. This will define the Western monastic movement. But why? There are plenty of reasons. The Rule of St. Benedict overall is very moderate. Extreme showcases of ascetic virtue are not required. You don't need to stand on top of a pillar. You don't need to live in the desert. The Benedictine monk should only engage in two activities, labor and prayer. There's an emphasis in the rule of St. Benedict on obedience, which I guess helps when you're telling people to do manual labor, which would include anything from crafts to gardening, even to one thing that would make future generations of Benedictine monks famous. Copying down verses from the Bible could be manual labor. What this means is that the rule of St. Benedict encouraged everyday people to become literate. They weren't just required to listen to sermons, but to read the Bible, read it themselves in Latin. And again, it was this loose quality. Work can be anything that's somewhat annoying that you aren't doing while praying. This helps the rule of Benedict spread all over Europe. Easy to follow rules, more vague rules that could be applied however the abbot sees fit, Trees are rooted deep into the ground, but they sway and bend in the wind. That's the rule of St. Benedict. But in its wake, you have monasteries becoming more wealthy and powerful than any institution in their day. In the 6th and 7th centuries, monasteries are established throughout rural Europe. Everywhere from England to Germany, 
the status of monks begins to change. They could be people of importance, such as the Venerable Bede. His work, Ecclesiastical History of the English People, garnered him the title, The Father of English History, and is today still an important work of Anglo-Saxon history. Now, something important to consider in this time. There is the idea from St. Benedict that the work of monks could help to save the world. This becomes something that the monasteries are known for in a very specific way. The pilgrims who went to see the Desert Fathers felt guilt and wanted to be purged of their sin by speaking with these holy men. So, people in the 7th and 8th centuries also had some guilt. It was a violent time, and sometimes the richer you were, the more violence you were able to inflict, but the more money you would get in return. Now, three guesses as to how wealthy, guilty patrons could contribute to the monasteries which protected the faith and gave them expiation. You got it. Fresh back home after a battle, some of that war loot is going right back into the monastery. And how could it not? It's easy now to see how powerful a monastery could get. Monks spent all day praying, sure, but they have time to work, especially if that work counts as manual labor, which could be anything. Overall, monasteries have education, wealth, and time. You do the math. It wasn't long before entry into the Brotherhood meant giving a kind of gift made of money. (laughs) It was money. It got corrupt real quick. Of course, this would be most seriously dealt with during the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s, but that's a whole nother story. In the end, monasticism is still attractive today. I and most people have a friend who said, man, I would love to join a Buddhist monastery and not talk to anyone for a month. I would. Sometimes you are that friend. Still, in our times, especially for people who didn't grow up in the church, like me, ties to religion are less dogmatic and less institutionalized. People are freer to take what they want from religion and leave behind what they don't want. Spiritual but not religious is a term we hear a lot. There's even an acronym, SBNR, spiritual but not religious. I see it as proof that people are still interested in the same things, no matter the decade. Looking at monasticism, there are mistakes to learn from and wisdom to be found in practices that started in isolation, contemplation, and restraint. That's all for now. If you want to delve more into the foundational religious texts that these monks care about so much, look no further. Joineth me as we continue the Book of Numbers. Chapter 9 And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the first month of the second year, after they were come out of the land of Egypt. Two years, man. Saying, Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at his appointed season. In the fourteenth day of the month, at even, ye shall keep it in his appointed season, according to all the rites of it, and according to all the ceremonies thereof, shall ye keep it. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the first month at even in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So did the children of 
Israel. And there were certain men who were defiled by the dead body of a man that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and before Aaron on that day. And those men said unto him, We are defiled by the dead body of a man. Wherefore are we kept back that we may not offer an offering of the Lord in his appointed season among the children of Israel? And Moses said unto them, Stand still, and I will hear what the Lord will command concerning you. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body, or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord. Whoa. The fourteenth day of the second month, at even they shall keep it, and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it unto the morning, nor break any bone of it. He's just going to tell them the rules again, in case you forgot. According to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man that is clean and is not in a journey and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger shall sojourn among you and will keep the Passover unto the Lord according to the ordinance of the Passover and according to the manner thereof, so shall he do. Ye shall have one ordinance, both for the stranger and for him that was born in the land. So interesting that even if they were unclean because of interacting with a dead body, they were still commanded to observe the Passover. In the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges Bible Commentary, provision is made both for accidental uncleanness and also for absence on a journey. This is evidently intended to be exhaustive and was understood in later days to include all good reasons which might prevent anyone from keeping the festival. So there's some leeway. That's probably appreciated. Verse 15. And on the day that the tabernacle was reared up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, namely the tent of the testimony. And at even there was upon the tabernacle, as it were, the appearance of fire until the morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And when the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, then after that the children of Israel journeyed. And in the place where the cloud abode, there the children of Israel pitched their tents. So they're moving. They're moving. The journey has continued. At the commandment of the Lord, the children of Israel journeyed. And at the commandment of the Lord, they pitched. As long as the cloud abode upon the tabernacle, they rested in their tents. And when the cloud tarried long upon the tabernacle many days, then the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and journeyed not. Hmm. Maybe this explains why it takes them so long. Sometimes they'll journey, but then when God is like, you must stay here for an extended amount of time, they're like, okay, the cloud, cloud's over the tabernacle. And so it was. When the cloud was a few days upon the tabernacle, according to the commandment of the Lord, they abode in their tents. And according to the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. And so it was. When the cloud abode from even unto the morning, 
and that the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they journeyed, whether it was by day or by night, that the cloud was taken up, they journeyed, or whether it were two days, or a month, or a year, that the cloud tarried upon the tabernacle, remaining thereon, the children of Israel abode in their tents, and journeyed not, but when it was taken up, they journeyed. Man, an entire year. That's got to suck. At the commandment of the Lord, they rested in the tents, and at the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord, at the commandment of the Lord, by the hand of Moses. Chapter 10. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly, and for the journeying of the camps. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they blow but one trumpet, then the princes, which are the heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto thee. When ye blow an alarm, then the camps that lie on the east parts shall go forward. When ye blow an alarm the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey. They shall blow an alarm for their journeys. But when the congregation is to be gathered together, ye shall blow, but ye shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be to you for an ordinance forever throughout your generations. And if ye go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and ye shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness, and in your solemn days, and in the beginnings of your months, ye shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings, and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the Lord your God. This makes sense. There's no other way you're going to easily communicate to thousands of people across a large space when you need something done right now. Everybody, we need to go to war. You know, pass this message along. It's either passing notes or we just get the trumpets. Trumpets way easier. Verse 11, and it came to pass on the 12th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from off the tabernacle of the testimony. Thank God. Literally. And the children of Israel took their journeys out of the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud rested in the wilderness of Paran. Out of Sinai into Paran. Let's go. And they first took their journey according to the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. In the first place went the standard of the camp of the children of Judah, according to their armies. And over his host was Nashon, the son of Amminadab. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nathanael, the son of Zuar. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helon. And the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari set forward, bearing the tabernacle. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set forward according to their armies. And over his host was Elizer, the son of Shedur. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Simeon 
was Shelumiel, the son of Zerishaddai. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Gad was Eliasaph, the son of Deul. And the Kohathites set forward, bearing the sanctuary. And the other did set up the tabernacle, against they came. And the standard of the camp of the children of Ephraim set forward, according to their armies. And over his host was Elishama, the son of Amihud. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Padazur. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Benjamin was Abadan, the son of Gideoni. And the standard of the camp of the children of Dan set forward, which was the reward of all the camps throughout their hosts. And over his host was Ahiezer, the son of Amishaddai. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Okran. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enan. Thus were the journeyings of the children of Israel according to their armies when they set forward. It looks like I recited 1025 incorrectly. And the standard of the camp of the children of Dan set forward, which was the re-reward of all the camps throughout their hosts. What does that mean? To the commentaries, the re-reward of all the camps, literally the collector or the gatherer of all the camps. The word is applied by Isaiah to God himself, as to him that gathereth the outcasts of Israel. Dan may have been the collector of all the camps, simply in the sense that his host closed in all the others from behind, and in pitching, completed the full number. Under any ordinary circumstances, however, the work of the rearguard in collecting stragglers and in taking charge of such as had fainted by the way must have been arduous and important in the extreme. Dan has everyone's back. Dan is a good egg. Thanks, Dan. In taking care of the people who faint or become left behind, the tribe of Dan is performing a function that God does for humanity, collects the stragglers and the people who faint, (laughs) who end up in the back of the line. Verse 29. And Moses said unto Hobab, all right, Hobab, what's up? The son of Raguel, the Midianite, the Midianite, excuse me, Moses' father-in-law. We are journeying unto the places of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come thou with us, and we will do thee good. For the Lord hath spoken good concerning Israel. And he said unto him, I will not go, but I will depart to mine own land and to my kindred. And he said, Leave us not, I pray thee, forasmuch as thou knowest we are to encamp in the wilderness, and thou mayest be to us instead of eyes. So Hobab's knowledge is so important that if he leaves, it is as if the camp had lost their eyes. And it shall be, if thou go with us, ye, it shall be, that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same we do unto thee. And they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them by day when they went out of the camp. And it came to pass, when the ark set forward, 
Then Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. So as they journey, the ark goes forward before them to help lead them, to help keep the children of Israel together, and to help scatter those who would stand in their way. Presumably, it seems, Hobab (laughs) stayed with them, because they continue. Chapter 11. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. Oh, (laughs) about to get angry. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and consumed the... Whoa, oh, we're already... The fire of the Lord burnt among them, and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses. And when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. Wow. I was expecting a little more lead up. He's just He just set them on fire. And he called the name of the place Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. Jeez, what did they do again? And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. Okay, never mind. I totally agree. Cannot deal with people complaining. Makes sense to me. The meaning of the name Tebarah, burning. Verse 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. (sighs) Guys. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Uh, that does sound good. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And the manna was as coriander seed and the color thereof as the color of bdellium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills, or beat it in a mortar, and baked it in pans, and made cakes of it, and the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. I mean, it's no garlic, but that doesn't sound too bad. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. Oh yeah, hey, let's appreciate the first like real description of the manna. In description, it's similar to what we remember from Exodus, where it falls from the sky, you know, the manna from heaven. Here it says... When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. So there's this sense of it coming from the sky or collecting on the ground. Actually, it's yeah, it's still kind of enigmatic. But we also get a physical description. The manna was as coriander seed, which could mean small and hard like seeds, and the color thereof as the color of bdellium. Bdellium being a kind of gemstone that comes from resin. I've seen it related to carbuncle which is red in color, like a deep kind of burgundy. But then it's also referred to as pearl somewhere, so it gives the appearance of it as being white. This is corroborated in the Septuagint version, which is usually translated into English as hoarfrost. So I guess we'll never know what the manna is. (laughs) Just that they're tired of eating it. They want some garlic. They want some fish. That's coming in the next book. This guy who takes one and makes like a million of them. I heard about it, okay? I know things about the Bible. Anyway, then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families. He was like, oh my God, someone's going to get burnt. Every man in the door of his tent. Every man in the door. So everybody. 
and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? Why are you doing this to me? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them, that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth the sucking child unto the land, which thou swearest unto their fathers? Whence should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone, because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me. I pray thee out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. Moses, Moses, Moses is getting tired of this shit. He's getting too old for this shit. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh, for ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh to eat, and ye shall eat. Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month, until it come out at your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you, because that ye have despised the Lord, page turn, which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? And Moses said, The people among who I am are six hundred thousand footmen, and thou hast said, I will give them flesh, that they may eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? And the Lord said unto Moses, Is that, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. <laughs> Dude, they're like bickering. This is great. I love this. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. I wonder what that spirit is supposed to be. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other, Medad. Just a couple of dads. And the spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophecy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My lord Moses, 
forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Enviest thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses is so tired of it at this point. That's what it means to hold that responsibility, to hold the spirit. Moses is saying to Joshua, Yeah, don't be jealous. It sucks. And Moses got him into the camp, he and the elders of Israel. And there went forth a wind from the Lord, and brought quails from the sea, and let them fall by the camp, as it were a day's journey on this side, and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. Whole lot of quail. And the people stood up all that day and all that night, and all the next day, and they gathered the quails. He that gathered least gathered ten homers. That's probably a lot. And they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people that lusted. And the people journeyed from Kibroth Hatava, eager to put behind all that death and complaining and quail, unto Hazaroth and abode at Hazaroth. Man, just like the people, I'm so tired of these laws. I'm really bored. And then I get like two pages of just so much information to pour over. I was buried two cubits high in quail. (laughs) I think the key to God's wrath is clearly shown before God sends the plague in verses 19 and 20. Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month until it come out at your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you. There's a point that God is making here, and it's a good point. It doesn't matter what you're eating. If it's all you're eating, you're going to get tired of it. The people despiseth God, and they look back at the food that they had before in Egypt, in captivity. This reminds me in Genesis, when Lot's wife looks back at the city as it's being destroyed and is turned into a pillar of salt. The implication, fair or unfair, is that she was looking back to another way of life, one that she missed. The people who are eating the quail miss the way of life at Egypt. They've said this throughout Exodus, and this is said constantly. If you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? If you're smart, probably some masa bread and manna from heaven if you're lucky. It would have to taste like nothing, or else how would you stand it? You're going to get tired of it either way. That's what they don't realize. It's not about what food they are eating. It's about the fact that they have to eat. Whether the food has flavor or not is unimportant. That's the greed. That's the lust. They don't want to be fed. They want to enjoy eating. And since they're not enjoying eating, they're like, ah. Fuck you, God. I want my fish. God sets them on fire. Can you blame him? Or her? 
or it. Or what? Joshua is jealous of the two men in the camp who can prophesy, but he doesn't know the burden of it. He lusts. God doesn't teach a lesson directly through words, but through actions. It's like God already seems to know the answer. God knows they're going to get tired of the quail, but he gives them the quail anyway. Fittingly, this is not seen as an end of the story. This is not the solution either. This seems to be an exacerbation of the original problem. God gives them all the quail they want, and it doesn't make anything better. People just start shoveling it in their mouths, which leads to the second thing that I think the story of the quails is meant to convey. What does God say continually? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I'm the Lord your God. Fear me. None of that is happening. When quail time happens, it's all about the quails. There's no thanks given to the Lord. There's no gratefulness at getting to eat. I think the second lesson is one of gratitude. I feel like God steps in when you start to think of things as going beyond the moment. In the moment, humans are like, I'm hungry and I want this. Feed me, God. What is encouraged if God just continually gives them things when they ask for it? They get tired of the quail. Well, now it's, you know, cucumbers and chicken day. What is God? A vending machine? When you have gratefulness, you are not focused on what you're not getting. The manna is boring and tastes like nothing. Actually, it tastes like oil, masa bread. That actually tastes like nothing. I've had some. It's just a dry cracker. I may have already discussed this at some point, but I read this article where a rabbi explained the nothing taste of masa bread is supposed to be a kind of mystical union between potential form and actual form, where they take the leaven out so it doesn't rise. So it just becomes this pure state of a thing existing. Bread in its simplest form. What better food for a people who are also just beginning with the barest essentials? So the journey is continuing, but God is definitely at the wheel. God even controls when they move and when they don't move. If you want to know when the Israelites are on the right path, God has moved the cloud over the tabernacle so they can go, and he's not setting them on fire. But if that cloud ain't going nowhere, if people are getting barbecued, they're doing something wrong. And here we end our reading for today. I'm going to keep this one a little shorter. When you're enjoying yourself, maybe it's wise not to overindulge. Thank you so much for listening to the Nonbeliever Bible Club. The Israelites are on the move. And so they will bring us to next week. Adios. (laughs) 